Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, Israel imposed a blanket 14-day self-quarantine on everyone arriving from outside the country in order to control the spread of the novel coronavirus. The requirement is set to last two weeks, but some experts predict it could remain in force even longer if the virus doesn't subside later in the season. In fact, Israel has imposed quite a few open-ended restrictions, limiting gatherings that might draw more than 2,000 people and asking Israelis to stay away from hospitals and nursing homes, suggesting they visit their loved ones outside the facilities instead. Dr. Yonatan Freeman is an international relations expert and lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He specializes in national security and emergency responses. Dr. Freeman, welcome to People of the Pod. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, how are you feeling? Are you healthy? Are you talking to us from quarantine yourself? Well, I'm healthy. I'm not in quarantine. We currently have tens of thousands in this country uh, that are currently under quarantine. But daily life continues, and the state of Israel continues to make moves, which really balance between having a proper daily life, but on the other hand, also having a proper response to the virus. I'm glad to hear that you're healthy. Explain why Israel is taking such drastic measures in response to this virus. Why are the steps so strict compared to other countries? I think there's two main reasons why Israel is taking very, very strict uh, moves to try to uh, impact the spread of the virus. For one, I think that Israel has for decades proven that it really holds the safety of the country in a very, very high regard. And that means that our intelligence agencies, our security establishment, always make sure that we know of threats before they become very, very strong against us. So I think one of the things which is really pushing us to take uh, strict moves against this virus is really that there might be a lot of information that's flowing into our decision makers, which is making us not so comfortable. That's for one. The second thing is that Israel is a very, very small country. We lack geographic depth. So any type of outbreak of the sort that we're seeing in Italy or that we saw in China and continue to see in South Korea and other countries, such an outbreak will really, really be a, a very drastic situation, a situation which can really create a, a havoc. And the fact that we don't really have so much geography, so much land makes us have to move very quickly to prevent a spread of such a virus in our borders. Mm -hmm. So is this unprecedented? I mean, did Israel take similar measures when people got hit with the swine flu or SARS? Yeah, we take this sort of measures. But again, what we're seeing right now is the world is different than the world that was during SARS, even the uh, connection that China has to the world. So what was going on in China was not the same China that was also being involved and connected to the SARS outbreak and other viruses in the past. Mm -hmm. So I think what Israel is doing is really drastic. It's really unique. We haven't done anything like this in the past, but I think that the fact that in the past when we had such outbreaks around the world and they didn't really make a big footprint here in Israel, this really proves that Israel has always taken the correct steps and has done so in a way which prevented any sort of outbreak here in present times. Mm -hmm. So now, what role does intelligence play, or, or did even intelligence play, 
in Israel's emergency response? In other words, and and I mean intelligence in the official sense, (laughs) Um, did public officials, do they track outbreaks in other countries before they come to Israel? Well, I think in terms of the intelligence, we always make sure we have all the information in our hands, especially when it comes to things that can threaten our security, threaten our economy, threaten the Jewish people uh, worldwide. And there's even been reports, recent reports in our uh, media, that weeks before we even had any kind of a virus in our country, we went ahead and sent individuals to collect virus samples of the coronavirus from Italy, from China, from Japan. We collected the samples. We brought it here to our biological center in Nestiona to try already to see what's going on there. What is this virus? How can we protect from it? So even before it got here, we already went ahead and brought the virus here, obviously in a, in a very secure manner. The second thing is really preparing. Weeks before it got here, we it was published that we purchased a lot of equipment. We knew that the masks would run out on the global market. We started preparing our Israel Defense Force in terms of the possibility that maybe flights will stop and we'll need the Air Force here to be able to uh, pick up the slack and bring things into the country in case there's a, a big problem with that. So I think part of our intelligence is, on the one hand, knowing what can impact our security and our economy and our people. And on the other hand, it's also about what we can do if it is certain that it will get here, just like we probably knew about the thing in China, what we can do to prepare our population and our decision makers so that when it reaches their plate, they'll know what to tell the public and how to act on a daily life. In other words, a really good, strong emergency response is emergency preparedness, right? I mean, really having some advance warning and really trying to prepare for the worst. Yes, preparing for the worst. And as you probably know and your listeners probably recall, Israel sent even individuals in the past to help fight Ebola in Africa, fight other viruses around the world. So part of our preparedness is also being based on our experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what we gain every time we assist people fighting viruses around the world, assist people in humanitarian situations like in Nepal or in Haiti, different places. So we help them, but we also assist ourselves in knowing what to do when such a time comes to our own borders. Do you find that other countries are learning from Israel and you know, taking a page from from Israel's playbook on this? Yes, and uh, a couple of days ago, actually, Netanyahu, our prime minister, had a uh, teleconference with leaders in Europe, including leadership in Italy, Cyprus, other places. And uh, I, I think that even during this uh, teleconference, we probably conveyed to them uh, what they need to do because based on what we're seeing in terms of the numbers, the people getting infected, the deaths, they will really need to do something. And I don't know if there's a connection, but maybe there is, where Italy just recently announced a complete lockdown on the entire country. Mm -hmm. So I think part of what we're teaching them is, on the one hand, to make decisive moves, because if you don't, this could get out of hand. The second thing is really getting the public involved. And I think one major difference that we have as an advantage here in Israel compared to most of the uh, Western world is that most of our people have been in uniform one day or another. And the fact that most people serve the national service in the military causes us to already have a mindset in the back of our mind that in times of emergency, in times of drastic need to move, there is a sort of discipline that comes about. Even though we might forget what we did in the Army, 
the Army never forgets us. It's uh, still in our system, uh-huh. and I think that's an, an advantage that it has in terms of our ability to be prepared and to act as a population when the time comes. That's a really interesting point, because I know here in New York, I mean, you see the occasional person wearing a mask or avoiding touching the handrails on the subway, but those subways are still packed. And I would say that not many people have let the virus impact their daily routines. And so I was going to ask you, how are Israeli citizens you know, handling all of the restrictions? Do they abide by them? Do you see them flouting them? Sounds like they obey. Yes? Yes, we obey, and, and that's why the virus is obeying till now and not spreading. I mm-hmm. think that, of course, it's some people complaining about, oh, i got to be quarantined. But I think the system here really allows for people here to uh, follow instructions to know that we don't have, as I said, geographical death. This is a small country. Mm-hmm. We can't afford to make any mistakes because if we lose a battle, as we always say in a war, if we lose a battle, we lose the country. So I think that's one of the things that's pushing the people to follow instructions. Another thing is really the safety net that we have on a social aspect. Uh, I've seen reports in different countries where people, even though they're sick, are coming to work because they're afraid they're not going to get their paycheck. They're not going to get their salary. Here we have a system which, and it's already been published and people have been using it, if you're quarantined, you'll get paid. Uh. There's no way to fire you. You'll be paid. And not only that, even if you're unemployed and you're getting unemployed benefits, you'll still be getting those benefits even though you're not showing up to the uh, job center. So mm-hmm. I think our safety net system also makes it that the economic reasoning for someone not following instructions is not there. Yeah. So I saw a list in the Times of Israel, a, a list of places where presumably patients have been and therefore anyone else that has been there has to be quarantined. For example, anyone who was in the Church of the Nativity between 3 and 4.30 on a particular date must go into quarantine. And anyone who was in the Herod's supermarket between 5.30 and 6 on March 6th needs to go into quarantine. This seemed remarkably precise, if not a little insane. Um, I mean, are Israelis keeping journals to track their moves? How do you keep up with where you are on a particular day at a particular time? Is there a methodology to this that's kind of built into the culture? Well, that's a very good question because I've been getting questions as if, what, is the government spying on everyone and we know where everyone is going and what's going on? I can tell you 99% of all the information that you're seeing on that list, where he was and where she was and where she ate, that's the citizens themselves telling us what's going on. I presumed that. Yes. <laughs> so one of the other locations I read was that anyone inside a Jerusalem voting booth at a particular school on March 2nd between 8 and 8, 10 a.m., you know, they need to go into quarantine as well. And that made me think about the political friction that has kind of been the story there um, for the past year. And I'm just curious you know, has this given any added perspective? Has it had any kind of galvanizing effect? Or has it even maybe exacerbated the political friction that has dominated there? Well, I think two things. For one, I think there is a consensus in terms of even those against Netanyahu, that Netanyahu and his health minister, Leitzman, are doing the right thing, took the correct steps, and consensus that the government is really working at it correctly. Mm-hmm. I think another impact is really that this continuing situation worldwide, which has great effects on our economy, tourism, different things, this could push more and more all sides to form a unity government. Uh, I think this is something which uh, we're hearing more and more voices about that. 
that there is a need for unity government. There's a worldwide medical emergency. We need to stop talking about the other issues that divide us apart and talk about this major issue, which is growing worldwide. And there's even calls right now to maybe form a coalition just for the coronavirus issue. In other words, they only deal with this. Because what's happening right now is that the parliament can't vote on certain laws to fight the virus because there is no government. So some are saying, let's form a coalition of the right and the left, and they will only vote on things related to the coronavirus. Mm. So I think Mm -hmm. this virus, which is infecting a lot of people, could also infect, in other words, the right and the left to try to like each other and form a coalition (laughs) government. Very interesting. Very interesting. Dr. Freeman, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. And most importantly, stay well. Thank you very much for having me. The Jewish diaspora reaches every corner of the globe. Beyond the obvious places like the U.S. and Israel, you can find Jews as far north as Reykjavik, Iceland, Fairbanks, Alaska, or Oslo, Norway. And as far south as Buenos Aires, Argentina, Johannesburg, South Africa, or Melbourne, Australia. Until recently, one might have thought that the Arab Gulf states wouldn't be a great place to look for Jews. But a recent series of articles have highlighted what AJC has long known. There is a small, growing, thriving Jewish community in the United Arab Emirates. Joining us now from Dubai to shed light on the community he heads as a volunteer is Ross Creel. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Now, there are Arab countries with rich Jewish histories. Egypt comes to mind, for example. But the United Arab Emirates isn't one of those, right? How is it that there came to be a Jewish community in Dubai? Mm, Well, the whole reason why we're so excited about the Jewish community of the Emirates is that precisely for this reason, because it's a new Jewish community. So rather than being a fragment of an ancient Jewish community, it's something new, it's something hopeful. Why is it here to answer your question? Because this is a place of business. Um, It's a place where there should be Jews. And that's precisely why we feel so strongly that we should build up a community here. Mm -hmm. You know, there's kind of an obvious follow-up question to that, which is, you know, why now? I guess the UAE is a very different country today than it was even just a couple of decades ago. Isn't that right? Mm. Well, that's a good question. Um, I like to think that it's not. In other words, I like to think that the tolerance and the pluralism, which has been so powerfully demonstrated in the UAE, is not a new thing. It's something that is decades old and goes, in fact, to its founder, um, Sheikh Zayed, whose values were all about pluralism. And in fact, even though the Jewish community is very new, There are other communities, um, Hindus, Sikhs, Baha'is, and certainly Christians that have been here for for decades. So the the concept of pluralism is not new, but indeed our community is new in the UAE. And that's a fascinating point about pluralism, and we'll turn more toward what interfaith pluralism looks like in Dubai in, in a moment. But I guess my question was more just economically, right? You said that part of the reason why Jews are there is because it's a place of business, and so expats from other countries around the world are coming to Dubai, and, and that happens to include Jews, and you have found this community and coalesced, but that it was not such a business hub 10 years ago, 20 years ago, right? Yes, I, I guess there is a miraculous aspect to the development of the UAE. 
20 or 30 years ago, the fabulous skyscrapers and development that you see here in Dubai and Abu Dhabi did not exist. So it is relatively new. Um, I think they made very smart decisions in the late 90s, especially in Dubai, which in fact is not an oil-based economy. And they realized very early on that they had to build up an economy that was not based on commodities, but was based on human talent. And if they didn't do that, um, they would never succeed. So those were decisions taken in the late 90s. And if you come and visit Dubai, you'll see now that those ideas and, uh, have flourished wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Can you just share with us a little bit of your own story, Ross, what it is that made you, uh, judging by your voice, a South African Jew, decides to leave that community and make your home in Dubai? Yeah, I guess you could say it was, a, at the time anyway, uh, something of a crazy decision, but um, <laughs> turned out to be the shit, so to speak, something about my destiny. But to answer your question, I'm an orthodox, observant Jew, Um, probably not the kind of person you would expect to find here in the UAE, certainly when I first arrived. Why am I here? Because I work for a global French company, which has a regional head office, and they wanted me to be here, um, along with other expats, and told me that if I wanted my career to develop, I needed to be here. And they asked me for two years, and I said no for two years, (laughs) and eventually I said yes. And why did I say yes? Because I came here with my wife and we met the sort of embryonic Jewish community that was here um, around 2010, 2011. And we went into supermarkets and found kosher food and we decided to have a great adventure. Um, We could never have imagined how great that adventure really would be. But all the Jews that are here, certainly Jews that came at the time that I did, I guess, are a bit adventurous and edgy and feel that we have something to offer. Um, I do want to say that I I made a kind of a personal pledge to myself that if I was going to come here, I wanted to be of service. And literally two weeks after my arrival, my wife and I were hosting Rosh Hashanah services, and we've never looked back. And I'd say it's probably the most exciting and wonderful thing we've ever done. Now, every Jewish community, I think, has its own kind of flavor. I'm an Upper West Side Jew. I'm, I'm a little bit different, I feel, from L.A. Jews, and maybe we're both a bit different from French Jews or South African Jews like yourself. Do you have Jews from everywhere in Dubai, and has there kind of emerged a unique Dubai Jewish flavor? Mm. Yeah, so eventually when somebody says to me, where am I from, I want to be able to say Dubai um, <laughs> rather than Johannesburg. Um, I'm very committed to the place. What would it mean to be a Dubai Jew or a UAE Jew? I, I think, as we'll discuss in the course of this conversation, Sefi, it'll mean being global in your outlook. It'll mean being very inclusive. It'll mean being committed to a vision of Jewish and Muslim brotherhood. And those will be some of the flavors eventually that the Dubai Jews and the UAE Jews will have. In terms of demographics, we're about as global as you can imagine. There's every Nusach, every language, every Masora, every tradition. And that's the beauty of the community. Um, When I went back to Johannesburg one time after being in Dubai for a few years, my rabbi came up to me after we prayed. And he said to me, Ross, isn't it nice to pray with people that are like you? Mm. And I thought for a moment and I, I thought to myself, no. I actually like to pray with people that are different from me. 
And I think that is sort of definitive of our community. It's just the beautiful variety and dynamism of it and the difference of it. And in a sense, what you see here in Dubai is just the richness and beauty of global Jewry. I love that. The article um, in the Times of Israel that maybe kind of first announced your community to the world, the headline was, for the first time, Dubai's Jewish community steps hesitantly out of the shadows. What was it that led you and your you know, co-religionists, the, the Jewish community of the Emirates, what was it that led you to step hesitantly out of the shadows? Mm-hmm. It's a lovely melodramatic title there. <laughs> um, okay, so we... Just to say that we had been developing for many years quietly before the Times of Israel and that beautiful article spoke about our community. Why did we decide to tell the world about ourselves? I guess because there was massive interest in our community and people were writing about us, but often in a way that was inaccurate and in a way that we felt um, didn't do justice either to our community or the UAE. And we felt the need to tell our own story um, through a journalist that we trusted and following interviews and research, etc. So we just felt the need to put on record a narrative about our community that was truthful and reliable. And the other thing is that at that time, I think there was more willingness on the side of the authorities to start telling our story. And in fact, they encouraged us to do so. So it was a mix of factors. Mm-hmm. Um, AJC's own Jason Isaacson has, of course, been traveling to the Gulf for many, many years. And one thing that he has found um, there, and which you allude to as well, Ross, is the way in which interfaith relations and a kind of pluralistic spirit is important to the Emirati government. Can you say a bit more about what that has meant for the Jewish community? Well, I think the first thing that it's meant is that we've always felt welcome here, Um you know, in the early years of our community, there was a certain amount of paranoia. There were urban myths. Was it okay to have Israeli stamps in your passport? Was it okay to say that you're Jewish in official documentation? Was it okay to open up to your friends and colleagues that you're Jewish? And there were worries and concerns and paranoia. And I think that as we adjusted to our life in the UAE, we realized that, in fact, our presence here is, is really quite natural. You would expect there to be Jews here because, as you say, there are expats from all around the world doing business, and and there should be Jews here. And uh, we started to realize that, in fact, in terms of the social contract of the place, with its massive emphasis on respecting your fellow human being and especially respecting the religious differences among human beings, we realized, in fact, that there wasn't a problem with us being here on the contrary that our presence here is is something that is celebrated. And, you know, we can speak a bit about why that is and how that came to be, but ultimately where we want to get to and where we already feel to some extent is that it's just the most natural thing in the world for us to be here. Mm -hmm. Do you wear a kippah out on the streets of Dubai? Yeah, so that's always the question people ask. And the simple answer is that I don't, but I don't not wear a kippah because... It would be dangerous in any way to do so, as unfortunately it may be in certain cities in Europe um, and in other parts of the world. We don't wear our kippot for two reasons. First of all, because we don't want to sensationalize our presence here. You know, we're ordinary people living ordinary lives in a certain way who just want to be Jewish as well. And we don't want to be poster boys and girls for 
you know, big sort of um, political and ideological ideas. We just want to get on with our lives. So that's the first thing is we don't want to sensationalize our presence. And the second thing is that we, we have to acknowledge that notwithstanding the amazing embrace of the Emiratis that we've enjoyed for so many years, um, Dubai is a very cosmopolitan city with people from all over the world. And uh, we have to also be a bit patient. We have to normalize our presence over time. So it's our judgment as a community that it's premature to, you know, having to have Jews wearing kippot, certainly in a very public context. In a more private setting, in business meetings, in hotels, in the airport, it's generally not an issue. And if people do wear a kippah, it might be that somebody politely and gently asks you to find another head covering. That's the worst of it. But we don't wear our kippot in summary because it's our judgment that it's premature to do so. Well, Ross, I look forward to someday hopefully joining you for Shabbat in Dubai, and I'm sure many of our listeners do as well. Thank you so much for joining us on People of the Pod. It's been a great pleasure, and I really encourage your listeners to come and visit Dubai and Abu Dhabi. It's the most incredible place, and you'll come away completely changed and invigorated by your time here. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Miriam Hirschlag, opinion and blogs editor at the Times of Israel. Miriam, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Sefi and Manya. Well, I'd like to imagine we'd get a break from talking about the corona pandemic, but I know we won't. Everyone is talking about it. And that being the case, I'm going to riff on the ways this frightening illness intersects with the Purim holiday we just celebrated. So my thinking on this started on Sunday when I was in the supermarket on Palmach Street here in Jerusalem. I was heading to the checkout to pay for seven kilos of self-rising flour, two kilos of sugar and 24 containers of tomato paste. And it occurred to me that in these days of quarantine, someone might reasonably assume I was engaged in hoarding. It's not a good look. I mean, it's viewed as alarmist and even worse, as being insensitive to the needs of others. For the record, when I took my items, I did check to see that the shelves had plenty more of each product. I was not clearing the place out like some kind of hoarder. I was just getting ingredients for a major food-making project for Purim. And that was when I started a little game in my head. Is it coronavirus or is it just Purim? It can be a little hard to tell. It's not just hoarding versus our over-the-top prep for a holiday. Oh, and by the way, if shopping for Purim looks like hoarding, wait till April when Passover shoppers pick the shelves clean and you have here in Israel an actual hoarding tradition where non-observant Jews fill the freezer with bags of pita bread. But there are other Purim connections, eerie similarities. So another one is obviously masks. Masks have been trending for weeks, and sure, a mask for having fun on Purim is totally different from a surgical mask for screening out microbes. The main difference is that the Purim mask achieves its goal. Of course, we also know that both the coronavirus and Purim can make you feel sick, although the symptoms do differ. But what about the fact that Keter, or crown, is mentioned three times in the Purim story, and corona means crown to denote the spiky surface of the virus? And children, what about children? They have more fun than everyone on Purim, and they are the most safe from COVID-19, the serious illness produced by the coronavirus. 
There's a lot of noise involved in both the Purim story and coronavirus. A lot of edicts are being handed down from on high. And what about care packages? In the Purim context, these are known as mishloach manot. A pretty bag or, say, an upside-down clown hat filled with treats is just the kind of item a friend might give to someone in quarantine. And it's not just the what, but the how of delivering mishloach manot. If you go to the home of neighbors or friends to give them their Purim treats and they aren't home, what do you do? You hang it on the doorknob and move on. That's exactly how friends and food delivery messengers are leaving food for those many thousands here in Israel who are under quarantine. So you can see it's a game show waiting to be made. And about that flour and other stuff I was buying on Sunday? Well, these were for the mishloach manot my family gave out. One part of it was a bag of lentils, spices, freeze-dried onions, and tomato paste that cook up into a quick pot of soup. And there was also a flour mixture plus a bottle of beer for making a fast loaf of beer bread. This, to be truthful, wasn't a matter of Purim versus coronavirus. It was the central overlap section of a Jewish Venn diagram that shows what the two things have in common, feeding those we care about, food to fulfill the Purim tradition of giving, and food to live out the value of helping those who are in need or who might just be feeling a bit lonely. Here in Israel, we may be proactively quarantining more people than any country in the world, But one thing we don't do so well is isolation. Now, Manya, what about you? Sefi, Miriam, family separation, travel bans, discrimination. These, of course, have been some of the more controversial topics of political debate for the last three years. They've been in the context of national security and well-being. Americans don't want terrorists in this country, so the administration banned Muslims, a discriminatory policy AJC has been outspoken against. The government discourages people seeking asylum by quarantining parents in detention centers and separating their children, another policy AJC has denounced. Now we're talking about the very same things, but in a very different context, public health. This virus does not discriminate. Well, one colleague pointed out it actually does. It targets the elderly, those whose health is already compromised. The young and healthy, they seem to escape with mild cases. But now some of the travel bans don't discriminate either. Israel is quarantining everyone that gets off an international flight. The United States is banning travelers from 26 European countries. As the spread of the virus picks up pace across the Middle East and elsewhere, like Australia, where Tom Hanks and his wife are convalescing, that list is sure to grow. These tough travel bans make sense. Inconvenient, to be sure, but they make sense. But for some, they're also painful because they've led to forced family separation, To keep our parents and grandparents healthy suddenly requires that, too. No visits to nursing homes. Some families are already canceling Passover seders. My in-laws had planned a huge trip here to see their grandkids and celebrate a bevy of big occasions. We've urged them to reconsider. I've been here before. About this time last year, in fact. My father's health was quite fragile, and my children's health was constantly gross. Finding that sweet spot when there were no sniffles to share seemed impossible, and it was driving me mad. But that sweet spot did emerge, and my children were able to see their grandfather just two weeks before he passed away. As my father's yard site approaches on Monday, I'm experiencing a bit of a deja vu. I had been eager to see my mother and my sister and celebrate my father. But regardless of sniffles, that is not going to happen. Not for a while. To be honest, I'm not even sure I'll be able to get into a synagogue to recite Kaddish. 
I share all of this because I've really been thinking about how an illness, a possibly fatal illness, puts life in perspective. It aligns our priorities, inspires creativity, and in some cases, eh, besides the runs on disinfectant wipes and paper towels, highlights examples of altruism. I do hope listeners can take their minds off the many inconveniences that the coronavirus is imposing on all of us and find those sweet spots. They will emerge, if you let them, perhaps even on the new campaign trail. Wouldn't that be something? My father, John Brishier, liked to say, it's always something. It is. If it wasn't a highly contagious virus, it probably would be something else. So, along with many fond memories of my father, priorities and perspective. That's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table. Sefi, welcome back from Israel. What will you be talking about on Shabbat? That's beautiful, Manya. Thank you for sharing that. I was in Israel last week, and I had all these grand plans of returning to people of the pod to share the special experiences I had, like visiting my friends who are new Israeli citizens and meeting their baby daughter or accompanying them when they went to vote in their new home for the first time. Or the beautiful contrast between old tradition and new exciting development as I joined my friend for his commute from Jerusalem to his office at Google Tel Aviv and prayed in the morning minion on Israel's brand new high-speed train. But the talk at my Shabbat table this week will doubtless be about coronavirus as we try to avoid making hand contact while passing food around the table. I feel like I have been racing ahead of the pandemic for the past two weeks. When I departed from the U.S. to Israel, I, like most of my friends, wasn't really concerned yet about the disease. While in Israel, I gradually found myself spending more time indoors and avoiding public places more than usual. I canceled a planned trip to Barcelona because Israel announced a mandatory quarantine for all travelers returning from Spain. Two of the friends I have been traveling with were returning to Israel after that trip, so a two-week quarantine wasn't an option, and the rest of us decided not to chance it. I departed from Israel for London, as planned, and shortly after landing in the UK, learned that Israel had further tightened flight restrictions. Basically, it was good I got out when I did, as most flights are no longer flying. In London, I had the opportunity to observe a bizarrely calm debate in the House of Commons about Corona. I had just come from a mostly shuttered Israel only to hear the UK's health secretary downplay the need for quarantines. The next day, I read that one of his undersecretaries had tested positive for the virus. The next day, yesterday, I flew home on a plane with only 38 out of 180 seats filled. I landed back in New York and less than an hour later found out that the US was instituting major travel restrictions on European flights. I returned to a very different America than I left. So far, I feel okay, but who knows, with all that travel, I may have been exposed to the virus. That's why I'm recording this from my home office, away from Manya and our producer, Kukang. We at AJC have canceled programs, scrapped travel, and will be working from home for at least next week, continuing our crucial advocacy, while at the same time doing everything we can to help prevent the spread of the virus. I hope that you will join us in doing your part, and together, we'll beat this. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. 
If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 